Hello. Welcome to the legend of King Arthur and his knights. Chapter 1, in which King Arthur is only mentioned at the end. 2,000 years ago, Britain was owned by the British. The British had lived on their misty island stuck out on the northwestern edge of Europe for many centuries. Kings and princes had risen and fallen, and the British were getting on just fine, minding their own business. Their island was right on the edge of the known world, separated from any other land by treacherous seas, and a full-scale invasion was unlikely. But in 54 BC, all this changed. The Roman Empire had been rapidly expanding, and the great Roman general, Julius Caesar, turned up on the shores of this foggy island on the edge of the world. He invaded the island, but found the British a little stronger and better organised than he may have expected. Caesar did not stay around, eventually returning to be the ruler of the whole Roman Empire. The Romans didn't forget about Britain, though. They just decided to wait a little while until they had another go at conquering it. Far away from Britain, an important thing happened in Judea. Someone called Jesus Christ was crucified by the local Roman leader. Quite a few people had followed Jesus and listened closely to his teachings, and some believed that he was the Son of God. On the evening before he was arrested, he brought his twelve closest followers, called the Disciples, together for a last meal. This meal has become known as the Last Supper. One of the vessels, maybe a cup, maybe a plate, used by Jesus at the Last Supper, came into the hands of a man called Joseph of Arimathea. A few days after the Last Supper, Jesus was executed by the Romans. Joseph tended to Jesus while he was on the cross. After Jesus rose up to heaven, St Joseph travelled to Britain with his family and a bunch of followers. He settled at Glastonbury, but the vessel was taken to a place called Corbenic, where it was housed in a spectacular castle. The vessel, which became known as the Holy Grail, was guarded by descendants of Joseph known as the Fisher Kings. Knowledge of the location of the castle and of the Grail was lost over the centuries. We will hear a lot more about this wondrous object later in our story. About a hundred years or so after Caesar's trip to Britain, the Roman Emperor Claudius decided he wanted some glory. He looked around, scouring the edge of his vast empire for conquest opportunities, and settled upon his target. That island, Britain, he decided, was ripe for invasion. He sent troops to the northern coast of Gaul, or as we know it today, France. The Roman army invaded the island, and this time they were successful. For the next 400 years, the Romans ruled Britain. They never quite managed to subdue the far north of the island, the northern part of what we now call Scotland. They also failed to conquer the large island which lies to the west of Britain, this island we now know as Ireland. Roman domination of Britain began to collapse in the 400s, and British kings rose to take their place. Here, history turns to legend, and the rest of our long tale is the stuff of legend. Maybe some of the kings we will talk about, including King Arthur, are based upon real rulers. Maybe they're not. It doesn't matter. The legends are wonderful stories, and we will treat them as such. According to the legends, there were many kings of different parts of the island. What Britain needed was a king to rule over all the lands. The other kings would still be kings, but they would rule under the leadership of a king of all of Britain. This was achieved and a number of kings of Britain ruled over the island and over the other kings. One of these was called Constantine. 
Constantine was crowned King of Britain at Silchester, which lies near the modern town of Basingstoke in England. He married a noble Roman lady, and during his reign they had three sons. These sons were named Constans, Aurelius Ambrosius, and Uther. Constantine ruled England for many years. His elder son, Constans, became a monk, and the other two boys were sent away to be educated. He was a good king, and he united the land of Britain. Many knights flocked to his court to serve him. Sadly, as with many good mythical and legendary kings, Constantine was stabbed to death by a member of his court. This caused a huge problem for Britain, as nobody was quite sure who should succeed him. His eldest son was in a monastery and had not been educated in kingship. The other two sons were simply too young. As always happens in these situations, there was somebody with the ambition to step in and make things happen. A king called Vortigern, ruler of a people called the Gewissians, spotted a chance to gain power for himself. And boy did he take it! Vortigern travelled to see Constans, son of Constantine, and persuaded him that he needed to come out of the monastery and fulfil his destiny as King of Britain. He told the monk that he, Vortigern, would run the country for him and do everything necessary to make things go well. He then took the bewildered Constans to London and crowned him. He didn't get an archbishop to crown the new king. He crowned Constans himself. Vortigern sat back and looked forward to many years of using a weak puppet king and ruling Britain himself. Crafty old Vortigern was very successful in this endeavour and ruled like it for many years. Poor Constans was weak and stupid and Vortigern had no trouble pushing him into doing whatever he wanted him to do. Vortigern, though, wanted more. He wanted to be king himself. After he had used the useless Constans for as long as the useless one was useful, Vortigern planned the final takeover. Vortigern persuaded the useless one to invite some people down from the far north. These people were Picts, a group of men very closely allied with Vortigern. The treacherous kingmaker held a great feast and got all of the Picts very drunk indeed. During the evening, he talked to them about how much better it would be if he, Vortigern, were in charge. The Picts had no love for the monk King Constans, and they heard Vortigern's words. They twisted the words in their mind, just as Vortigern had intended. Pretty soon, they had convinced themselves that useless Constans was just not going to cut it as king, and that he had to go. They rushed to the king's bedroom and sliced off his poor useless head. The head of King Constans was brought to Vortigern. He was far too clever to show how pleased he was. Instead, he pretended to be outraged that Constans had been killed. He had all the killers executed and had himself crowned King of Britain. The people looking after Constans' brothers, Aurelius Ambrosius and Uther, took them away to safety. King Vortigern lived in fear. He had conned the Picts into killing Constans, but he'd executed the killers. It was highly likely that the Picts were going to be mightily unhappy about this. Of course, it transpired they were indeed very annoyed, and rose in rebellion against him. Vortigern was so fearful he would lose a war against the Picts and their allies that he invited some people into Britain to help him fight and to keep him in power. These people were called the Saxons, and they came from the place we now call Germany. The Saxons who came to Britain were led by two brothers called Hengist and Horsa. Vortigern and his Saxon allies defeated the Picts easily. 
Vortigern, though, still lived in fear. He had used the Picts to get rid of the true King Constans. The Picts had proved to be more trouble than they were worth. Now he had used the Saxons to get rid of the Picts. If these guys proved to be more trouble than they were worth too, then he really was in trouble. The Saxons were a clever lot. Hengist offered Vortigern a deal. You still have many enemies here, he said to the worried king. Your people really don't like you. They would far rather have Aurelius Ambrosius or Uther as their king. When these boys get older, you will be in trouble. I will help you. I will bring many, many more soldiers over from Saxony to help you defend your kingdom. All I ask is some land in Britain on which to settle my people. Vortigern, looking for the best option under the circumstances, agreed. Within days, 18 ships had arrived from Germany, fully laden with Saxons. Vortigern decided he had to stick with the Saxons. They were his best chance of staying in power. Having made his decision, he gave them the land of Kent in the far southeast of Britain. He also married Rowan, Hengist's daughter. Of course, the Saxons proved to be more trouble than they were worth. More and more of them arrived from Germany. The Britons were aghast at these invaders being invited into Britain and begged Vortigern not to let in any more. The people took the law into their own hands and deposed Vortigern, putting his son Vortimer on the throne instead. Vortimer raised an army and fought the Saxons. Four times he defeated them and Hengist's brother Horsa lost his life. The Saxons, taking Vortigern with them, fled back to Germany. They were not done with Britain, though. Vortimer fell victim to one of the most deadly themes of myth and legend, the wicked stepmother. Rowan persuaded a poisoner to slip something nasty into Vortimer's food. Poor old Vortimer was no more. His father returned to the island and became king once again. Hengist also returned. Vortigern begged Hengist not to bring thousands of soldiers with him, but Hengist brought 300,000. Vortigern sighed and wished he'd never bothered trying to be king of Britain. Just like the Picts, the Saxons were definitely more trouble than they were worth. Hengist, however, thought that being king of Britain might be fun. He met with Vortigern. The king tried to persuade Hengist to send most of his men back to Saxony. The Saxon leader agreed to send most of his people back, but he wanted a meeting between the Saxons and the leading princes and men of Britain. Vortigern had tricked and duped many people during his turbulent time as King of Britain. There is an old saying which goes, you can't trick a trickster. Well, in Vortigern's case, this proved to be 100% wrong. The king agreed to the meeting, and soon Hengist and his men were meeting with Vortigern and the Britons at a place near the modern city of Salisbury in southern England. The meeting seemed to be going okay. Terms were discussed, and it seemed that all might end well. Suddenly, though, without warning, Hengist cried out, Nemet ure saxas! As soon as they heard these words, the Saxons, every last one of them, drew out knives they had been hiding and made straight for the nearest Britain. 460 British barons were killed by the treacherous Saxons. Hengist stopped pretending to be Vortigern's friend and had him locked up. The Saxons had taken control of Britain. They didn't kill Vortigern, and eventually they let him go into retirement. He made his way to Cambria, the place we now call Wales. Even in retirement, Vortigern didn't give up. Even though the Saxons were strong and held Britain firmly in their grip, he dreamed of being king again. 
he went to see his mystics and asked them for a prophecy. Was there any chance he could be king once more? They said there was, but he needed to build a strong castle as a base, since he had lost all of his other castles. They chose a site in North Wales on Mount Erith. The builders began to build. The construction did not go well. Foundations were built for a great tower. The foundations didn't last long. Every night, the foundations which had been laid the day before disappeared into the earth and the builders had to start again. Vortigern, mightily troubled, again consulted his mystics and wizards. They cast their spells and discovered what needed to be done. They told the king he needed to find a young man who had never had a father, kill him and spray the foundation stones with his blood. Many men might have given up at this point, but Vortigern was determined. Unsure about how to find a boy who had never had a father, he sent messages out all around Britain to see what they could find. One evening, a couple of the messengers, weary from their day's travels, sat down to rest. It was a lovely evening, and they sat outside watching the people as they went about their evening business. They were distracted by a quarrel between two young men. As usual with boys, the subject of the quarrel was quickly forgotten, and the argument descended into insults. One said to the other, I don't know how you dare argue with me. I am descended from royalty, and you have never even had a father. The messengers brought the young man to King Vortigern. Who are you? asked the king, and what is this about you never having had a father? I never had a father, said the young man. My mother says she has no knowledge of how I came to be born. As for my name, that is an easier question. I am called Merlin. Now, why am I here? Vortigern, obviously deciding he had nothing to lose, told Merlin the truth. Merlin laughed. Your mystics are either no good or they are lying to you. Tell them to come here and I will tell you what the real problem is. Vortigern, surprised and intrigued, did just that. When they were all gathered, Merlin spoke. Right, tell your workmen to dig below the place where the foundations are laid each day. Dig down far enough and you will find a pond. This is where the foundations disappear to. The workmen dug. They found the pond. Merlin smiled. He was far from finished. Drain the pond of water, he commanded. At the bottom you will find two enormous hollow stones. The workmen dug. They found the stones. Examine the stones, said Merlin. In them you will find two sleeping dragons. Every night the dragons fight. They are so large that their fighting disturbs the ground and causes the foundations to disappear into the pool. The workmen, amazed and a bit scared, examined the stones. They found the dragons, one red and one white, fast asleep, just as Merlin had predicted. Everyone was highly impressed. They all turned to Merlin, wondering what on earth this young man was going to do or say next. Merlin didn't do or say anything. He didn't really need to. He didn't need to because, as darkness fell, the dragons woke up. Just as Merlin had described, the dragons began to fight. Now that they were no longer beneath the earth, their fight was displayed for all to see. Both of the enormous lizards breathed searing hot fire and the fight was fierce. Soon the white dragon was on top and the red dragon was forced back to the far end of a nearby lake. Three times the white dragon seemed about to win the fight, 
but the red one held on. The red dragon, close to defeat, summoned up its reserves of energy and doubled its efforts, forcing the white one to retreat. The white dragon retreated and retreated and then disappeared. The red dragon, having won the fight, disappeared too. By now, of course, Merlin had everybody in his hands. He had been proven to be correct in everything he said. Vortigern, trembling as if he really didn't want to know the answer, asked the young wizard what it all meant. The red dragon is the British nation, explained Merlin, and the white dragon is the Saxon horde. You, King Vortigern, have invited the Saxons in, and just as the white dragon did to the red dragon, they have forced the British people back. They will continue to destroy the land and tear down cities, churches and buildings. Eventually, though, the Britons will rise and defeat these invaders, just as the red dragon defeated the white one. They will be led by a boy born in Cornwall. The whole island will be ruled by him. He will be so powerful he will rule in Gaul and even defeat the Romans in their own lands. All the world will fear him. As for you, King Vortigern, run away very fast. The remaining sons of King Constantine will not rest until you are defeated and they rule this land. Aurelius and Uther are already planning to avenge their father's murder. Vortigern said nothing. He realised that Merlin was right. He had killed the rightful king and he had brought the Saxons to Britain. He did the only thing he could think of. He ordered his builders to work day and night to build his castle as quickly as possible. When they were done, Vortigern shut himself up inside it and awaited his fate. Merlin had predicted the downfall of Vortigern. More importantly, he had prophesied the coming of the great King Arthur. Next week we will see what happens when Aurelius Ambrosius and Uther come looking for Vortigern. Oh, and King Arthur will be born. I hope you have enjoyed the first chapter of The Legends of King Arthur. Please check out the website www.mythandhistory2.podbean.com Please contact me on Twitter, at Myth and History, Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History, or by email at mythandhistory at gmail.com. Please also check out my other podcast, The Myths and History of Ancient Greece. So, until chapter two, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.